The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me today. While the Me Too culture has rallied women in every work situation, there are many women working in factories, farms, as caregivers or domestics who can't speak out because their work circumstances leave them invisible and too vulnerable. Their need for a livelihood coupled with fear of retaliation makes speaking out still too great a risk. How can they be helped? How can they be empowered? Today you will hear answers from Shireen Alamzadar. She's the director with Kayla Altmeyer and of Healing to Action, a nonprofit organization building a worker-led movement to end gender violence. Shireen is an attorney and legal expert on workplace sexual violence. She has represented low-wage workers in sexual harassment, sexual assault, and civil rights cases. She is co-founder of the Coalition Against Workplace Sexual Violence, a cross-movement that connects rape crisis agencies, civil rights organizations, work centers, and government agencies. She has published on the important intersection of economic inequality and gender-based violence. She is adjunct professor at Northwestern University Law School. Shireen Alzumzazar, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I'm going to make sure I try to get your name correctly pronounced. Thank you. Um, So, Shireen... What was it that prompted you and Kyla? Is it Kyla? Carla. Carla. What prompted you and Carla to create Healing to Action? Well, we had both been representing survivors of sexual violence in the workplace for a few years. And we had witnessed a lot of challenges uh, in actually using the legal process to seek justice. So the first challenge was the, the hostility of the legal system itself. Um, there were a lot of there are a lot of ways that cultural myths and stereotypes about survivors and trauma are embedded in the legal system in terms of the types of rules and requirements that survivors have to meet in order to have a viable legal claim. So that was one challenge. And then the other more deep-rooted challenge was that um, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable coming forward at all. So we saw a lot of cases of survivors who would call us once and then never call again, um, who were too ashamed or who didn't have a support system in order to really feel like they could 
stand up, tell their stories, and seek justice. And so we realized that we needed to think about solutions outside of the traditional legal process that would help address some of the realities that survivors faced and how the legal system was really not suited or reflective of those realities. A really important finding. So for the sake of our listeners, just so we understand what these women were facing, what does gender violence look like in some of these workplaces, the factories, the farms, for domestics? So it, you know, there's it varies in terms of how it manifests in different work environments, but there's a couple of uh, commonalities between these workplaces. One is that the the people who work in these jobs tend to have a lot of um, specific characteristics or vulnerabilities, um, things like not necessarily having uh, skilled training or a h- higher education, oftentimes having um, a liminal legal status. So whether it's you know that they don't have immigration status, or that perhaps they have a criminal background. Um, as many people in low-income communities are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system, um, including survivors of violence in those communities. Um, you know, a variety of these kinds of challenges that makes it very difficult for people to find a job in the first place. And to, and to lose a job is really devastating and can really threaten the survival of a lot of these workers in a way that people with a little bit more economic stability or um, other support factors in their lives may not have that same level of difficulty. So what it looks like, you know, so first of all, that's one of the big pieces is that people don't have the ability in a lot of these situations to um, speak up in the way that people in other workplaces may may feel a little bit more empowered to do. Mm -hmm. Um, The other piece is that a lot of these industries are service-based industries. And so there's a much wider range of people that might be able to exert power and abuse on the workers in these industries because they're not just working with supervisors or coworkers, they're often working with customers or guests or clients. And oftentimes the wage structure of these industries is such that they have to make sure the customer is satisfied in order to make a living wage. So that opens them up to abuse from a much wider range of people in their job than, than people who are not in the service industry. So if I'm working, um, so, I was going to say, if I'm working as a domestic and people are bothering me, customers, and I report that I become a problem for management. Right. And sometimes, um, you know, so, so domestic workers work in people's homes, they, they, there's a variety of employment arrangements that you might have. So some domestic workers are employed, have a direct employment agreement with the person who, you know, lives in the home, whether it's um, the parent of, say, children who need uh, child care services, the child of parents who need elder care services, someone who needs house cleaning services. So you may very well be experiencing uh, harassment or violence from people that um, that either are receiving your services directly but are also your supervisor or from people who perhaps have a really close familial relationship with the person who's abusing. Um, and so these create special dynamics in the domestic work situation where it's particularly difficult to try to bring these issues up and to try to come to a resolution with the 
customer slash employer. Mm -hmm. I could understand. And I think um, you've mentioned when we spoke earlier, and there's a recent documentary, um, Night Shift, that shows work is so vulnerable sometimes to management who are literally saying, if you don't do this or if this doesn't happen, you will not get this shift or you will get that shift or you won't get um, the opportunity to take a day for your child, etc. So they really, as you say, they have been quite vulnerable without a voice in a setting which they really can't leave because financially they need the money. That's right. Right. So, yeah, many of the people in um, low-wage industries, uh, as a general matter, low-wage industries often have a lot of instability in the terms and the conditions of the employment. So, people don't. Are, these are often industries where people are getting their schedule the same week that they're um, working a particular shift, or that there may be a lot of influx, like new employees in the organization, and restructuring that's happening all the time. A lot of these, um, a lot of these jobs don't have paid benefits or or even you know any benefits at all. So people may not be getting insurance or paid time off in a lot of states, um, and so a lot everything then becomes a negotiation with the employer. The employer has a tremendous power, um, and supervisors have tremendous power to give these kinds of. Um, you know, accommodations if they like the employee or if they're happy with the employee. And so you see time and again that if somebody is refusing to comply with unwanted sexual advances or is reporting things that the employer doesn't want to know about, that there's um, many more ways that they can actually retaliate against workers in these jobs than in jobs where people have a lot more benefits and a lot more entitlements um, as part of their job or their employment arrangement. So how does healing to action step in? What does healing to action um, provide? And does healing to action go to a certain workplace where there's been some complaints or does an individual find you? How does healing to action operate, Shireen? So healing to action, the the mission of healing to action is to build a worker-led movement to end gender-based violence. And so our goal and our, our all of our programs are really focused on building and cultivating leadership in low-wage worker communities so people have the support systems that are missing right now, recognizing that survivors um, in you know a low-wage workplace or a low-income community are much more likely to talk about the issue and seek help from people who are in similar workplaces, who speak the same language, who have some of the same... Um, challenges who live in the same neighborhoods. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to build a peer leadership structure that is both about supporting survivors where they are and also about developing grassroots solutions and initiatives that really change the culture that's surrounding sexual violence right now and empower workers who are most impacted and communities who are most impacted by this issue to... um, you know, to change the, the conditions that they're working and living in. So if I <clears throat> if I was working in a factory, what do you mean by a peer support um, network and a, you also talk about survival um, groups. How would it happen? How would a person find out about it even? Right. So the way that we currently reach workers, we do that through a couple of different strategies. 
One, most of the way that we are currently meeting workers are through um, organizational partnerships and alliances. So some of those relationships are through our partners in the labor movement. We work with unions and worker centers and other grassroots organizations that um, that organize workers. And we, we recognize that a lot of these organizations already have these kind of embedded peer leadership structures, maybe not around gender-based violence, but these union members are oftentimes very politically active. They've received a lot of education around how to organize their workplaces. And so what we really do with these groups is we try to build their internal capacity so that union members or, you know, rank and file union members or members of a worker center are able to develop skill sets around things like how do I address trauma? If I see somebody in my workplace that I think is experiencing abuse either on the work site or in some other part of their life, how do I even start to approach that conversation? How am I? How do I make sure I'm being supportive and a strong ally if somebody tells me that this is happening to them? So we really try to build the, the capacity of these existing leaders to address this issue, which a lot of them are telling us that they see in their workplace, but they don't feel like they have the skill set or they've had the conversation yet internally as an organization about how to address it. So that's one way that we reach workers um, is through these types of partnerships with the labor movement. And the other way that we, the other strategy that we use is that we recognize there are a lot of workers, there are a lot of low-wage workers who aren't organized. They're in non-unionized workplaces or perhaps they are survivors of trauma and it's really hard for them to engage in community activism the way that it typically happens in their in their communities. Like, for example, if you're a survivor of trauma or you're in an abusive relationship, you may not feel ready to tell your story in a public forum, which is oftentimes how community organizing happens. Or you may not feel able to make weekly membership meetings or stay engaged in a sustainable way. So with these workers... We're actually developing our own membership base that is really focused on this specific kind of situation. Um, and we're working with survivors who are not organized. So people maybe who are receiving services through a partner agency, perhaps they're receiving therapy services or they're a, a legal client of one of our partner agencies. And we're working with them to develop a program, a leadership program and a membership program that's really tailored to the needs that they have. Um, as survivors of sexual violence who are also low-wage workers. And our hope is that by developing these two discrete um, communities of worker leaders that we will start to develop a strong base of people who can both reach people who are in their workplaces, who are in their school systems, in their neighborhoods, and also work together to develop grassroots campaigns or initiatives that are really rooted in their realities and that are really grounded in strategies they've already been using to okay. survive sexual violence. Okay, we are going to take a break. When we come back, you're going to hear more about what made Shireen decide that it was very important that she hook in with the labor movement because they needed the sexual violence harassment training and she needed to dovetail with more people who had a stake in the um, organizations and in the labor movement. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Shereem Alemzada. She's an attorney, a legal expert. She's not only the co-director and co-founder of Healing to Action, she's also the co-founder 
of the Coalition Against Workplace Sexual Violence. So we're going to hear about how those two dovetail and more specifically how they've helped people. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Shreem Alamzada. She, together with Caller Altmeyer, is the co-director and co-founder of Healing to Action, a nonprofit organization building worker-led movement to end gender violence. On that note, Shireen, I wondered if you could clarify for our listeners the, the use of and the value of putting together the goal of reducing sexual violence in the workplace with other goals in the labor movement and how that has helped and enhanced healing to action? Sure. So we started to really try to foster collaboration between the labor movement and the movement to end gender-based violence in Chicago about five years ago. We, uh, Carla and I and several partners, uh, different organizations in Chicago, rape crisis centers, worker centers, and um, legal aid organizations came together to start to think about how we could move, how we could work across these different disciplines to um, reduce sexual violence in low-wage workplaces. 
And what was really clear at the beginning was that a lot of these stakeholders hadn't necessarily worked together before. Um, so you saw a lot of siloing in the in the two movements. You saw that a lot of the labor organizations were seeing the issue of sexual violence, but they didn't see it as a labor issue. So they were they weren't sure what to do. The main way that people would deal with that is trying to refer their members to, you know, a counselor or a lawyer and just kind of dealing with the issue in a very individualized way. Similarly, with the partners that were providing legal services and social services, um, you know, they were really focused on the individual client, the individual survivor and what their immediate needs were um, without necessarily working on some of the broader issues that were more that were drivers of sexual violence in these communities. So, um, for example, we didn't, there wasn't a lot of activism in the rape crisis centers or um, in some of the sexual assault organizations around things like incre- increasing the minimum wage or, um, you know, pushing for certain work uh, workplaces or industries to have stronger protections. And so, so what we started to try to do within our coalition is to build a shared understanding of how, economic um, justice is a sexual violence issue and injustice is a driver. Um, One statistic that's particularly startling is that people in the lowest income bracket in the United States are up to 12 times more likely to experience sexual violence in their lifetime than people in higher earning income brackets. So there's no clear evidence that that experiencing sexual violence is certainly an outcome of of income inequality. Um, And then also recognizing with our labor partners that sexual violence was a labor issue, that it was um, one way that people were being exploited in the workplace and that there were a lot of survivors in the labor movement who could have been leaders, who could be organizing their workplaces, who could be using their stories of survival and their resistance strategies to really change their communities in so many ways, but without really meeting their needs or working with them collectively as a movement, that there was a lot of potential that was being lost. um, And this was something that they really needed to focus their attention and resources on because it was an issue that was really pervasive and a lot of the workers that they were organizing. One of the things that you mentioned um, on your site that really pertains to this is, as you say, so you have people both in the labor movement um, and healing to action, and they really dovetail. But let's say women in the labor movement who really the barriers for them being leaders are the violence itself, if it's unremitting, if there's that starts to get to a person in terms of, Uh, depression, anxiety, literally fear about working the shift, perhaps. And the other you mentioned is poverty. And that is, if I have to run home and take care of a sick mother and pick up babies at a a, um, child care center, how on earth am I going to sign up to be a leader? And maybe you could talk about how healing to action, the kind of strategies and services you've provided to make those things possible or to help people so they actually could be leaders, as you say? Yes, we we are really focused on building a new model of organizing that's trauma-informed and survivor-led. So the first barrier you talk about is trauma and safety, you know, fears for safety around organizing. 
sexual violence is a really great way, uh, you know, enacting sexual violence is a great way of quashing organizing and making people feel like they don't have a voice. Um, it's one of the best strategies to make people feel disempowered. And so we definitely believe in addressing that trauma head on, as opposed to thinking that if you can get people involved in other kinds of leadership activities, that maybe they'll be able to address this trauma um, without really clear support. So one piece is really trying to create healing spaces in the labor movement, as well as in other community spaces. So people have the chance to share their stories and to have a community that's bearing witness to what happened to them, that is really there to listen, because so many people that experience this in the workplace feel like they don't have a voice, and they feel like so much power has been taken away. So right. one piece is, is incorporating healing into the into the programmatic work that we do. Um, and then in terms of the second issue, the second barrier you, you mentioned, which is poverty, again, it's recognizing that our job in organizing is to create a space where people can lead and that there are a lot of barriers to leadership in the way that traditional organizing and traditional community building efforts work. But, you know, if somebody has childcare, um, challenges, then, then perhaps it's part of the job of the organizers to, de to develop ways of supporting those needs. So we try to do things like providing childcare at the meetings that we have um, to think about how we can provide um, reimbursement for people's time or for people's transportation so that it's not like they're choosing between being a leader and being able to support their families. Um, so we really try to think about how we can shape our organizing model to address the needs that people in certain communities have in order to actually exercise meaningful leadership rather than just trying to push them to adapt to a model that really has, was never made for them and was not it was not tailored to their to their realities I, I love the, those two steps. When you speak about it, the idea of someone being able to go to a safe space and talk about what they've been through and have, others hear that, is that space generally led by um, a mental health worker? Is it peer-led? That's a great question. It, it sort of depends. Um, we, we try as much as possible to ask the workers that were, you know, that were starting to build a relationship with what they think would be the best way to engage mm -hmm. on the issue. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes it will be um, you know, it will be training organizers in a grassroots organization about how to facilitate this discussion. Sometimes healing the action will come in directly and give a training um, or start, you know, do a series of exercises to get the conversation going. Ultimately, our long-term goal is always to give workers and survivors the skills to do this work themselves. But for many of the people that we meet with, it, this might be the first time they've ever spoken about the issue in a public setting or in a community setting. And so we try to figure out the way that people will feel most comfortable starting that conversation. Sometimes it's talking with people about something totally unrelated, but it's an issue in the community that is really important and people are talking about and then figuring out how to draw a connection. So to just give one example of that, here in Chicago, um, one issue that's been on a lot of low-wage workers' minds has been immigration policies in the last year. And people are really scared about immigration enforcement or, ha you know, having people they love being deported. And so as lawyers, we are 
we are privileged to have a skill set where we can talk with people about this issue and provide them with skills or resources around, you know, or information around this problem that's really at the forefront of their mind. And then we work with them to think about how does that issue relate to what Healing Action is working on. And we start to build a conversation from there. So trying to really meet people where they are and where they feel comfortable starting the conversation. It's And it's so true, as I've experienced doing trauma work, when people are given information that's empowering, it lowers anxiety, uh, it, it makes so much sense in terms of giving people a sense of agency in terms of being able to help themselves and help others. Now, when we talk about um, women and or do men participate in the um, listening groups? Have you had men who also have benefited from the kind of sharing of traumatic work events Um Yes, we have worked with people across genders, um, and sometimes we have spaces that we develop that are gender-specific, and sometimes the spaces are, are mixed gender. It really depends on the community and where they are in terms of having the conversation. So when you're talking with a, a grassroots organization that's small and closely knit, and people have been working through a lot of different issues, those might be spaces where you have the ability to have a mixed gender conversation. Um, certainly, we when we talk about gender-based violence, we never focus it on, we don't think of it as a, a woman's issue. It's We don't see it that way. Um, we see it as an issue of really, of, of using violence and using power and control to enforce gender stereotypes on everybody. And we see it as an issue that everyone is harmed by because the real goal is for people to be able to express themselves and their identity as authentically as possible without being punished for it in the workplace. Mm. So we talk with men and women about these gender norms and we try to start at a very um, basic level, recognizing that these dynamics are not unique to the workplace. They don't begin in the workplace. They often begin in childhood, there are cultural norms that we are all indoctrinated with from a very early age, and those expectations can then lead to harmful behavior from people um, who are trying to grapple with those scripts that are being imposed on people. So when we have those kinds of deep conversations, we find that men are able to relate to it, even if they haven't personally experience sexual violence in the workplace, that they are starting to see the harm that that sexual violence has on everybody and how it's tied to some of the oppression or marginalization that they have also experienced. And we also see with men um, who have not experienced violence, um, a real a lot of men expressing a deep um, interest in being strong allies and in supporting co-workers and family members and friends who are going through this experience, but similarly lacking the the skills or the training to do that. And so we try to provide that type of support as well. That's a great point. So rarely do we hear, how do we help the bystander help the person who's being victimized or marginalized? It's so empowering actually for everyone. That sounds like a really valuable component of the of the. Um, groups and the presentations and information sessions that you're doing. When you think, Shireen, of people going through the program, 
can you actually think of someone who really was um, one of the many victimized who went to one of these sharing sessions, really made use of the strategies to help them in terms of caregiving, etc., and who really stepped up as a leader? Yeah, so Healing to Action is, is about a year and a half old, and we're still implementing a lot of our programs. So in terms of people who have gone all the way through our model, that hasn't happened yet. But what, what I can say is that we've worked with many workers over the last five or six years as we formed the Coalition Against Workplace Sexual Violence, which in some ways was a precursor to Healing to Action. And I can the, the very first meetings that we had as a coalition where we were bringing together people from different organizations, there were, there were workers at those meetings um, and workers that con- we continued to meet through our coalition work. And we had workers in those meetings tell stories and, um, you know, explain what their, their situation was. And oftentimes it was like the first time they had ever done that in um, a group, especially a group of people they were meeting maybe not for the first time, but some people that they, they didn't know as well. And being receiving support from this larger coalition or collaboration between all of these different movements, I think, was really um, an important first step for a lot of the workers that we met. And what ended up happening was that we, we did develop several uh, initiatives and programs through our coalition. And one that that stands out in my mind that responds to your question is that in 2016, we had a citywide convening um, where we talked about sexual violence in the workplace, but we we really tried to make the convening as worker-led as possible. So we had mostly, most of the programming was led by workers with most of the speaking and um, training given by workers. And so some of these workers who had come to uh, the coalition initially, shared their stories and started to have these conversations for the first time, were able at that point at the convening to tell their stories in an even more public setting to about 100 workers just mm-hmm. like that who were in similar industries, came from similar cultural backgrounds. And they shared their stories and they gave advice and they shared their vision for what they wanted to see change in their communities. And so that was kind of the next step was having these like really open conversations where they were able to break the silence on the issue and also share their vision. And what happened with several of the people who were at that first convening in 2016 is that some of those workers now having gone through multiple iterations of sharing and, and brainstorming what should happen started to reach out to survivors. Um, So they started to approach healing to action in the coalition and tell us that there were people that were in their workplace or in their neighborhood that they had been approached by or they had approached to talk about an issue of sexual trauma and that they wanted our support in figuring out how to support that worker or support that group of workers. Um, So you saw over several years this transformation from people who were just starting to exercise leadership by sharing and then moving towards action and moving towards being a resource in their community for other workers. That's really, that's amazing. And it's really what was part of your real goal is the empowerment piece. Oh, it, it's really, really wonderful to hear what you're saying. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Shereem Alunzadar, and she with Carla Altmeyer are the founders of Healing to Action, a nonprofit organization building a worker-led movement to end gender violence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Shireen Alumzadar, and she is the co-founder of Healing to Action, a nonprofit organization building a worker-led movement to end gender violence. You know, all of us have heard so much. We've not only heard the stories from the Me Too um, Victims who have shared bravely, we've seen some repercussions, but one of the things that many people have been saying, and I think it's something, Shireen, you're doing, which is people say, you know what, if the Supreme Court ruling didn't change things, harassment legislation may not change things, we need to change culture. And it seems to me that one of the the strivings you're talking about and that healing to action seems to do is work with labor and workplace environments to change culture. And with that in mind, I wanted to know what have been the challenges as you've tried to dovetail these two important um, sort of movements, what have been the challenges that you've faced, Shereen? I think one of the big challenges has been 
that the, the model we're proposing is really uh, inverting or shifting power dynamics, not just between workers and employers, but more generally thinking about how we can center the work that we're doing around what, what workers want to see. Um, and so, you know, we have worked with um, multiple campaigns that have worked on this issue of sexual violence in different ways. And typically what happens is, as we're seeing now with Me Too as well, is that there is a really great policy proposal or um, recommendation by a group of, um, say, lawyers or experts, organizers, and it gets, you know, that becomes sort of the rallying cry, the change that we're moving towards. Um, and sometimes many, particularly right now, the, those types of proposals turn into actual victories, which is really exciting. But then the issue is whether these victories actually have a concrete impact on workers' lives, whether they're able to be implemented. Um, and our proposition is that perhaps we start the other way around and we, we talk with workers about small changes they might want to see in their communities or what are your priorities? You know, perhaps it's not a sexual harassment protection, but it's something a little bit different. For example, one thing we hear from a lot of workers that we meet with is they're really interested in educating youth, you know, or they're really interested in developing a family-based approach to this issue. Um, And these are not the types of proposals that you know, most people in our field are thinking about or pushing for. So I think the challenge is helping to have a more expansive view of who can be the one coming up with the ideas um, and also, you know, of what ideas are possible and how they might relate to the, to the types of problems that we're trying to solve. Um, I think that sometimes it's hard for people to see that as viable or feasible um, because of the challenges that people think about when they're considering whether a worker could actually come forward and, and take on this leadership role. But, um, but I would, I, I, we really work hard to help people see that there is potential there. There is interest there. There's passion there. And there's a lot of leadership there that is, has been untapped until now. Well, I love your recognition of not imposing a wonderful plan on people, but actually inviting those very people to express what they need and be part of the plan. I think, you know, you have worked in with so many groups in terms of um, sexual violence and uh, anti-rape movements and so many um, people who have not had a chance to give voice to the things that would really matter. So I think that's really well said. Shereem, now if I were an organ, now you're in Chicago, I'm here in New York, so if an organization um, or a private business thought, I like the idea of really making my workplace, and in fact, I I spoke to someone who owned a business, and what he said is, I'd be very amenable to the idea that you're building, you know, a dignified workplace for everyone, everyone benefits, men, women, Um, because everyone's treated with respect um, rather than just coming in with a sexual harassment program. So how would people find you? How could an organization contact you, a private company, for instance? Well, we're happy to talk with anyone who has an interest in in centering worker leadership to develop new solutions. a few ways you can reach us where we have a website um, www.healingtoaction.org and on the website are multiple ways that 
um, people that are interested in working with us can contact us. We're also pretty active on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Healing to Action. We have a Twitter page called, you know, it's um, also the hashtag or the Twitter handle Healing to Action. Um, So people can follow us on social media. Um, We're always happy to have conversations with people in other parts of the country. We we really believe in our model and we want to help support other communities and thinking about ways that they can Um, implement similar models and there are other communities around the country who are trying and experimenting with similar kinds of um, you know worker-led models to address this issue so we're we're trying to do our best to stay connected with those communities and continue to build a a network of support around the country for workers oh it's terrific so let me ask in the work you've been doing this past year and a half what is something that has really surprised you from your work joining labor movement with the um, anti-violence movement, the sexual violence movement. What has, what did you never expect that you've come upon? So I think given what I just mentioned, which is some of the skepticism that I've seen from, from groups, from different types of stakeholders around whether workers are kind of up to the task or this is something they would want to do. um, What has surprised me or perhaps I don't know if I would call it surprising, but has been very heartening and inspiring is how much I don't see that attitude with workers themselves. Um, I think when you actually start asking people that have never really been asked, what are their ideas for change? And you start to see this huge range of solutions that are really creative really powerful and really different than, than some of the, the proposals that are more kind of mainstream or that you're hearing about in, in the media, perhaps. Um, that's really been inspiring and, and, and in some ways surprising simply because it, it's really dis- debunking this idea that, that workers are not interested in being leaders um, or that they're not interested in taking an active role in addressing this issue in their workplace and community. That has been very consistent, that when you actually meet with people who are affected by the issues, um, there is no lack of interest, you know, regardless of the fact that people might have incredible amounts of trauma or a lot of barriers to actually doing um, work on the issue, that you still see this incredible um, amount of interest and and leadership that's already happening in these communities that's mostly been uncovered, it mostly has not been, um, you know, recognized. So a question that I think a listener might have is, in terms of you providing caregiving, um, helping people with scheduling so they could participate in some of the leadership groups or the trauma sharing groups, who funds that, Shireen? That's a great question. Um, well, so we have a variety of, of strategies that we use to to support our work. Um, we're, we are a startup organization, so we're still very much in our development phases around our, um, you know, around coming up with resource streams, particularly because so many other programs don't offer these kinds of services. A lot of our work is educating and you know, having dialogue with with particular, you know, possible funders or supporters about why this work, why this kind of model it needs so many resources, and why those resources are such a good investment in addressing this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we work with a variety of um, foundations, particularly foundations that are supporting grassroots and movement building work. Um, we also have a pretty um, strong and growing base of grassroots supporters, so individuals, um, mostly in our own community, but also across the country, we've received donations from people who just believe in the model and really want to support the model. Um, and we also are trying to think creatively about how we can um, generate op- income opportunities for the workers that we are organizing. So recognizing that a lot of the um, people that we work with are actually, you know, experts in caregiving or, are, you know, who are, are bilingual, do have these skills. How can we use their skills um, and provide them with potential income opportunities as well in leading the work that we're doing and facilitating the, the spaces we're trying to build? It really does reflect your goal, which is to empower people as a way to protect them and to know what's the best way to proceed. Uh, It's really great to hear. Um, Another very logistical kind of question is, so do people, people are not meeting in groups during the workday or are they, or are they meeting in the evening or how does it work? It, it's it's interesting. So we, we, we work with so many different kinds of industries and workplaces that we meet kind of all over the place. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some, there's some industries where people really don't have typically don't have work on the weekend. Um, for example, like in caregiving, a lot of times people like if they're providing childcare for working parents, they may not be working on the weekends. Whereas restaurant workers, for example, that's the weekends are some of their busiest days. So we try to, we try to, uh, it's always a a challenge, especially when we're trying to bring together workers from different industries. Um, but we, we meet in the mornings and the afternoons and the evenings, (laughs) you know, um, on weekends, on weekdays, a lot, you know, we try to structure the meetings that we have around the schedules of people that we work with. And it does require flexibility. Um, it requires, you know, thinking about our programs in a more fluid way, but, it has allowed us to to reach workers in a variety of different um, workplaces and 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 communities. Sounds great, Shireen. I want to thank you for coming on and for recognizing the potential of workplace leaders to build and change the culture so that that works to protect everyone from sexual harassment and violence. I think it's a wonderful model. I wish you the best. I encourage our listeners to listen in, support it, help you folks move this forward because I think when you empower people, you really create so much safety as well as so much self-esteem and only good things come from that. I want to thank you again. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, iTunes, under Voice America at Psych Up Live. You can eventually, when this will be by 6.30 this evening, that's um, Eastern Time, this will be a podcast and it'll be even on the um, Healing to Action site. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.